Finally tonight, a special contribution to our series, Race Today, where we've been exploring how different generations see the issues making headlines. The Conversation is a short film from the OpDocs team at the New York Times. Directors Gita Gan-Beer and Blair Foster spoke to parents of African-American boys about the conversation they have with their sons on how to respond when stopped by the police. This is unspoken code of white of, of racism and white supremacy that says that my life does not matter. You can put yeah. your hands up and say and cooperate and say that I'm choking and still be killed and then there's no repercussions. It's maddening. I get so frustrated and angry um, about um, having to prepare my kids for something that 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 um, that they're not responsible for. And these are conversations that people of other races do not have to have with their children. The conversation with him was really just, look, you're a beautiful young boy. Being an African-American is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blessing. You have come from great people, but it's also a hard thing. In America, because of your skin color, as a black boy and as a black man, we are going to be dealing with a lot of danger. Under no circumstance are you to talk to the police if you're arrested until I get there. Do what they say. Don't get into any arguments. Make sure your hands are out of your pockets so they can see. These are the questions you can ask. This is who to call. This is, this is what happens if this bad thing Think it's not like, please, master, don't whip me. No, it's like, excuse me, sir, what is your badge number? I'm going to film this. If you want police brutality to stop, if you want police to treat you like a human being, then you, you have to see yourself as a human being. You have every right in this world that anyone else does. What I love about you as my son is I remember when we thought about having you and you know knowing that we wanted you and watching you grow you are the muhammad ali you are the malcolm x you are the martin luther king you are an amazing young man and the future is yours and i will do my best to make sure you're safe that's it i love you Uh, my name is Chris Travis. I'm one of the participants here at Renaissance, and I have two little boys. Um, I think we have a picture of them. Uh, Rowan is uh, three years old. Leo is two years old. They're pretty cute. If you see them running around, I mean, when you catch them, you know, and put filters on it and stuff, they look pretty cute. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to have some conversations with them about race. I'll have some conversations with them about racial justice but I will never have conversations with them like that. Uh, Rowan is about, I said he's three now, he's gonna turn four in a couple of months. And preparing for this message, I started thinking that if, I, if we were the exact same family we are now, but our skin was brown or black, I think I would need to start having some age-appropriate conversations with Rowan now to prepare him. Um, because I certainly want to orient him to the way things are in the world before he just gets smacked in the face by it. And I can't imagine what it is like to feel as a parent like it's not a question of when, but it's a question of, of or not a question of whether, but it's a question of when your kids are going to face some type of racial injustice. And I'll be honest with you, 
I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not ready to introduce Rowan to that particular aspect of how this world does not work the way that God wants it to work. And I don't know what to say about that, I, except that I just grieve deeply for it. These are the kinds of things that are kind of hard for me to understand, and I, th and I think they're hard for a lot of white people to understand, because it's actually possible in America for a white person to live a lot of their lives without thinking about racial justice uh, much at all. Uh, especially if you live in certain parts of the country, it's, it's possible to arrange your life in such a way that you're insulated from a lot of these issues and tensions. It's a, it's a kind of privilege that white people have, uh, this ability to be quote-unquote colorblind. It is a luxury that black and brown people do not have. And for much of my own life, I was blind to this reality. And I didn't start to open my eyes a little bit until about 10 years ago when I took a job teaching math to sixth graders in central Harlem. On the day that President Barack Obama was sworn into office, I was uh, teaching math about 10 blocks from here. And I will never forget the feeling of getting off the train in the morning that day. I could not stop smiling. I just, I felt lighter than air. I was so excited to see my students because I knew this was going to be such a big deal in Harlem, the first African-American president of the United States. I, I, I felt like my whole body was tingling. And my kids, they didn't even understand the deep movements that were happening in their hearts, but you could see it in their faces. There were dreams and possibilities germinating behind their eyes. I mean, it felt like a ceiling had been lifted. It felt like someone had opened up a door onto a stuffy room and suddenly everybody could breathe. Two steps forward, one step back. Ten steps back, though. One of the downsides to that election was that a lot of people kind of sat back and said, finally, we can put all this racial stuff behind us. See, a black man, the most powerful man in the world, a black man in the Oval Office, it's done. We're equal now. But meanwhile, I still went into that school every day where most of my students, or many of my students, didn't have enough food to eat, let alone a pencil. And from my perspective in that classroom, the hundreds of years of injustice of slavery and Jim Crow and the legacy of these unjust systems were not undone when President Barack Obama stepped into the Oval Office. Teaching in Harlem really started to change me. It was the first time in my life that I had ever been in a visible minority, and it was just a little taste. But the school that I taught at, there, there were no white students in the school, and I think there was three other white adults. And so for most of the day when I was there, I was the only white guy in sight. Now, this is just a tiniest little taste, just a few hours a day, but it, it was important to me. It did something to me. I had never before really had to think about what color I am. It was just never really brought to my attention but especially the longer I was in that environment, I started to notice it. It started to kind of stick out in my mind. I was reminded of it. Sometimes I, I felt like I kind of sank into the background, like sometimes walking around those halls with those rich, substantial-looking people. I felt like I just faded into the white paint, like I, like I was just a ghost of a person traveling around with, with real people. 
Other times I felt like I stuck out like a flash of lightning. I remember one time in particular, we were in a conference meeting. This was my second year teaching there, and there were some teachers and community leaders and whatnot gathered around, and everybody was giving great ideas and laughing and whatnot, and I caught a glimpse of my arm out of the corner of my eye, and I started. <laughs> and I actually, actually hid my arms underneath the table. I felt so exposed. I just felt like I stuck out. That's one of the delightful things about Harlem. It was more true 10 years ago than it is today, but Harlem was a place where an African-American kid could grow up feeling normal because the police officers were black, the principals of the schools were black, the shop owners were black, the council members were black. But even in this sort of protective um, bubble, uh, one of the few places in America where a black kid could feel normal, it was still set in a bigger context, and I started to notice some things. I remember the first time that a little uh, black girl came to me with a paper cut, and I got out my pack of Band-Aids, and I cleaned off her hand, and I put that bright cream-colored Band-Aid over her beautiful brown skin, and it just struck me. And then for the rest of the day, I couldn't stop seeing the way that that Band-Aid stuck out. The first time I spoke at Renaissance, Jordan, I, I just thought of this this morning when I put this mic on, he was so apologetic to me that this little pom-pom is, is brown. <laughs> and I was like, dude, for once in the history of the United States, a white guy has to wear a brown pom-pom. You know how many times Jordan has preached to churches in other parts of the country and wore a white cream-colored pom-pom on his face, and he's apologizing to me about this? Um, I noticed, um, I, you know, I noticed some other things. Like, um, I, I'll never forget how uh, disappointed and confused I felt when I unrolled that poster of our brand new president that they gave us because I was so excited to hang that thing up in my classroom in Harlem. And then when I unrolled it, I saw that the artist had, had obviously whitened him up a, a bit. And I can only assume to make it more palatable in other parts of the country, maybe, but my students looked at that thing like, that is, that's not how he looks. I did home visits in Polo Grounds, which is a really notorious um, housing project here in, in Harlem. And actually, the I don't even know if I should make this joke. It's, this is one of those jokes that's funny but not funny. The black teachers liked to bring me along because they said that people would think that I was a cop and so that they could visit safety. I don't, that's not even a fun, I shouldn't even say that. But they always wanted me to go with them. All right, somebody gets that joke. It's sad. Sometimes you have to laugh. Um, but. You know, I, I've been in projects, but standing on the 12th floor of those towers with the bitter winter wind whipping through those halls because the exterior windows were broken, the only other place in the world that I have seen towers like that was in Ukraine, which is a former Soviet bloc country. And the thing that I kept saying to myself in my mind when I was up there was, this is America? Now, I needed this kind of immersive, dramatic experience to rattle me out of my complacency, to, to begin to open up, open up my eyes a little bit, in part because I couldn't see, and in part because I wouldn't see. And that's the part that scares me. Because white privilege is a tricky thing. It's kind of invisible when you have it but it's obvious to anybody that doesn't have it. It's kind of like a fish in water. You, you can't really see it. You're just sort of in it. And it is possible 
especially in many parts of the country, to arrange your life in such a way that you're not really exposed to these tensions and issues that are very real. But the thing is, these issues and these tensions and the people are very real. There's real things that are happening. And so, to shut yourself off to it, you do sort of have to shut yourself off to it. You do kind of have to choose not to see And it's that choice not to see, the choice not to listen, the choice not to try to understand that I think the Bible speaks to most clearly. White privilege is kind of like this. You ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? No? Yes? No? That's my wife's jam. She loves that show. We don't have cable, so we only watch it when we travel, but whenever we stay in a hotel, she's laid back in the bed watching that thing. Basically, here's the show. A CFO or a CEO of a company, they go disguised as an an entry-level position in their own company. So you get to see this high-power man or woman snap on some fake buck teeth and put on some prison-issue glasses, and then they go and they work a week or two at an entry-level position. And it's funny because some of them don't know how to mop, like someone has to teach them how to mop or whatever. Um, But then at the end of the episode, there's this big reveal where they come back and they show the employees like, Look, all this while, it was the CEO or the owner of the company that you were working with. And when they're working in the company, some employees are doing a good job and some not so much. Uh, some employees treat them really well and, or treat each other really well and some not so much. And the same thing always happens in the big reveal. The, uh, when they come, they reveal who they are and they reward some of the employees and they take some of the other employees to task. But they all say the same thing. They all say, well, we, did, we didn't know it was you. If I had known it was you, I would have acted a lot differently. Only uh, white privilege is actually a little bit more like this. Imagine that God came to earth as a young black boy today and um, lived that life with all of the unique ups and downs, trials and pleasures that that very unique existence in history would be for him. Legally equal uh, for a few decades after hundreds of years of legal subjugation, Legally equal, but we somehow still can't manage to desegregate schools because in this world, money always finds a way. Legally equal, but in reality, the heir of incalculable inequity. But deeper than that, and more important than that, the heir of the image of God and of the destiny of Christ. And he lives his life, and then judgment day comes. And everyone comes before the throne of God and seated on the throne is that young black boy, king of all creation. And with perfect justice, he sorts the people. And to one group of people, he turns and says, I was trying to make myself understood and you listened to me. You tried to understand. You saw that I didn't get paid for the same type of work. You saw that I got prosecuted differently for the same kind of crimes. You saw that I didn't have the same access, the same opportunity to equal education, and you did something about it. You cared about it. You believed me when I said that things were different, and you didn't just pretend like everything was okay. Well done. Come and share your master's happiness. And these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Word for word from Scripture, Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did 
for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, I want to pause to clarify something there. I am not saying that black people are the least of these. Quite the contrary. Uh, that's not the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, and black people don't need pity. Uh, they don't need to be saved by white people. I'm not talking about white saviorism, farthest thing from it. In fact, historically, black people have pulled themselves up bettering themselves and the rest of us along with them in spite of all the obstacles, challenges, and injustices. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to lift out is something Jesus is teaching here, that there are real things happening in the world, and it is possible to notice them, pay attention to them, and do something about them. And it is also possible to ignore them or choose to be blind toward them. And to the people, he says, you know, so whether we're talking about racial injustice or what's going on with Syria or some other issue, to the people who notice and do something and try, who live that kind of life where, you know, you can't address every single thing, but you live that kind of life where you try to understand, you notice, and you try to actually do something, and you actually do something. He says, if you've done anything, anything, for the least of these, you did it for me. And that is an encouraging thought. But conversely, he says, but if you ignore what's going on, then you ignore me. Right now, the black infant mortality rate is twice the rate of the white infant mortality rate. And you might be tempted to think that's a poverty thing. It's not. Uh, a black woman with an advanced degree is more likely to lose her baby in our healthcare system than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And maternal mortality is the real scandal. If being a pregnant black woman in the United States was a profession, it would be the fifth deadliest profession in our country. Logging, fishing, aircraft pilots and engineers, roofers, Black mothers. Black women are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as white women are, according to the CDC. A committee of the United Nations found our country in violation of international human rights because this racial disparity was so stark and ordered us to put systems in place to track this data so we could figure out what was going on and make some changes. But we have not complied. This is a real thing going on. I read most of this information in an article last week. This is not over there or back then. This is today. It's really happening. But it's possible to pretend like it's not. And to this group of people, the master will say, you saw me trying to make myself understood, and you changed the channel. You saw that I was paid differently for the same work, and you said that I should work harder. You saw that I was prosecuted differently for the same crimes, and you said I should stop committing crimes. You saw that I didn't have equal opportunity to the same education, and you did everything in your power to keep your kids away from my kids. You didn't believe me when I said that things were not right. You pretended like everything was okay, because everything was okay with you. And this group of people are going to be distraught. 
they're going to be like that group of people in Undercover Boss. They're going to be like, when, when, master, when did we ever see you like this, my king? If I had ever seen you like this, I would have done something about it. And here are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, word for word, straight from Scripture. Matthew 25, verse 45 and 46. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's some uncomfortable stuff right there. Admitting privilege is uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. It feels like you're admitting that you did something wrong when you feel like you didn't really do anything wrong. It, it feels like you're like, I didn't choose this. I, didn't, I, would, I was just born white. It's not like I made kind of some choice. It feels like you're being asked to take responsibility for everything that every evil white person ever did. But let's unpack that a little bit. See, here's what I like to think about myself. I really like to think that if instead of being born now, I was born in the 17th century, the son of a wealthy plantation owner, a plantation owner and an owner of humans to the extent that humans can be owned. And I like to think that I'd be that radical exception. I would, I would turn my back on my family. I would turn my back on all that wealth and advantage and I would break the law to free these people. I'd be some big abolitionist. But then I have to ask myself, is there anything about my life now that stands out that much? Is there anything about my life now that would make me think I would be even a little bit like that then? Here's something else that Jesus said in Luke 16, 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If I can't be uh, troubled to, to just listen and learn about what's happening today, why do I think I'd be so engaged and concerned back in the day? If I don't care about the legacy of slavery, why do I think I would care about slavery itself? If I can't admit my privilege now, why do I think I would admit the inequality when there was so much more at stake for me then? You see, and there are real injustices happening today, here, it's close, in my own family even, and in myself. Here's something that happened two years ago. I was in a sauna at a YMCA, different part of the country, and this old white lady came in. So this was already an awkward situation. Um, <laughs> and she came in and she sat down and... Uh, <laughs> This might be the low point in my life, now that I say it out loud in public. She came in and sat down, and uh, unsolicited, she says, I'm not racist, but, pause, when your preface is, I'm not racist, but, you were about to say some racist stuff is about to come out of your mouth. And I'm, I bristle because I'm like, I'm trying to, you know, relax to the degree you can relax in a YMCA sauna. I'm not trying to have a big moment right now. And she says, I'm not racist, but it's wrong for white people and black people to be together in relationships. Two years ago, 2016, I'm not talking about today, I was a little shocked too, even though I am white, and so I probably hear a little bit more of that kind of racist stuff when I go to different parts of the country um, that, that people maybe at least have the decency to try to like hide um, for you, but this, I, this shocked even me. Instantly I know... I have to say something, but what? My first impulse, of course, is blast this lady. 
just go in on her. I mean, nobody else was there, um, <laughs> but <laughs> just shake her. I don't know. Um, say something to make me feel good, right? So I could tell this story and be like, and then I did, and then, and then, uh, or say something to just, you know, beat her down. But the thing is, she wanted that. I could see it was all over her face. That's why she said the whole thing to begin with. That's what she wanted. And so I could tell I needed to be smarter than that. And I started thinking about Jesus and I started praying because Jesus had this way of just always knowing what to say, no matter how tricky the situation was. He would, he would say something that would trap somebody in their own uh, verbal trick. He would say something, tell a story, uh, even a joke sometimes, ask a question that would expose somebody's hypocrisy, expose somebody's fakeness, or if he was going to get somebody mad, he'd get them mad in just the right way that if there was any hope left for that person, that was their only hope, to, to get mad in that way. And if there was any hope left for this lady, I wanted to try to say something that might have some chance of possibly getting through instead of just ripping into her and then sending her off to go do that to the next person that she preyed upon in a sauna or whatever. <laughs> Um, so, but I had to pray. I really didn't know what. So I started to pray. And I found myself praying like that a lot for this message. Um, I have not felt so inadequate to a message in a decade. This is the concluding message of a series that we've been going through together as a church called The Gospel and Race. And we've been delving into uh, the issues of race, racial justice, and um, the, the legacy of the African slave trade and its far-reaching effects on the systems, unjust systems in our country, and the deep-reaching effects of the trauma from all of this injustice. Uh, we focus mostly on black and white issues, but that's not because the gospel doesn't have a lot to say about other groups of people and other tensions in society. It's just because we needed to start somewhere, and um, so we started here. But we hope this is just the start of the conversation. This last message is about white privilege. It's about uh, blindness and having our eyes opened. It's about shame and guilt, uh, and it's about um, the way Jesus gives hope to each and every single one of us. And I, I found myself praying for this message in ways I haven't prayed in, in a decade. Uh, my first impulse with this message was the same first impulse I had with that lady. Let me say something to make myself look good. And the first couple of iterations of this message were basically just that. 10 pages of, I'm woke, I'm a good person. Um, got rid of those. My next impulse was um, to blast this lady, you know, make something to make me feel good and make us all feel good. So my next couple of iterations were basically like, racism is bad, racial injustice is bad, and racist people, they're the worst. And we could all agree about that and pat ourselves on the back. But I've wanted to be smarter than that. And so I found myself praying just like I was praying in that sauna with that lady. Now, here's what I can't believe I didn't think to say to that woman. I can't believe I didn't think to mention my own family. My aunt, my father's sister, married a black guy named, named Willie, my Uncle Willie. Great guy, stand-up guy. They have two sons, um, wonderful young men. Um, they're grown now. I actually officiated one of my cousin's weddings a few years ago. 
But I have an interracial family in my family, close to me, and I didn't even think, I was so flustered by this situation, I didn't even think to mention it. But here's what I did think to mention. At that time, I was uh, leading a, inter, inter, um, or a bilingual church, interracial church as well, but a bilingual church, and the makeup was very diverse, it was mostly white people and Latino people. And we had a lot of interracial families and a lot of just beautiful children with all kinds of different um, diverse combinations at work, and they were so precious to me. And I knew she was going to give me about 15 seconds, so I said that very quickly, and then I asked her this question. I said, are you saying that the world would be a better place if those children didn't exist? And she squirmed out from under that. And she started telling me about a mixed girl she knew who always called in sick to work or whatever. And I'd like, I listened to her for like five minutes. This is one of those where you got to pay out five minutes of listening to get 20 seconds to say something. So I listened to all that and I brought her back to the question. I was like, okay, okay, I hear that, I hear that. But are you saying that the world would be a better place if those kids that I love at my church did not exist? And she kind of tried to squirm out from under that one again. And I brought her back to that question. Are you saying that the world would be a better place if those kids did not exist. And in the end, all she could do was say, well, and there was just this long silence. Now, I wish I could tell you she like fell on her knees and started bawling like, no, no, I'm wrong. It wouldn't be a better place. That didn't happen. But she couldn't bring herself to say yes. And for that reason, I like to think that that might have stuck with her. Now, this was kind of over there a little bit, but this isn't over there. This is here, too. So since I brought up my, my aunt and my uncle, let me talk about them for a minute, um, because this is my own family, and this is about to make me sound like an 80-year-old man, um, but this really wasn't that long ago. They named their second son Travis after my last name, my father's last name, my aunt's maiden name, um, a gesture that's so gracious on my Uncle Willie's behalf I just can't even believe it. And they named their second son Travis because my dad decided that my family were, was going to go to the wedding. Now, I know this makes me sound like I'm from the 1800s or something, but we're from this part of the country. And I was about 12 in this wedding, and that was a big deal to them because not all of her siblings did go to the wedding. And her mother and father, my grandpa and grandma, refused to go to the wedding. Because they weren't racist, but it wasn't right for black people and white people to get married. So this stuff, it's not far away. It's close. It's not yesterday. It's today. And I cannot imagine how frustratingly slow change must feel to black and brown people in America. How do we keep engaged when you're facing something that seems so overwhelmingly huge, how do we keep chipping away at this thing? What hope do we have? And if you're in a spot where your eyes are beginning to open a little bit and um, you become susceptible to these waves of, of shame and guilt and confused paralysis, what hope do we have? The answers to these questions have to do with the nature of blindness, the nature of healing, and the nature of Jesus. And I want to show you what I mean by looking at a very short passage about a time that Jesus healed a man who was physically blind, and it has some, some important truths and metaphors for us. 
who may be uh, spiritually blind. It appears in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 25, and I'm just going to make a couple comments about a few of the verses. But uh, what happens is in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, it says, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Now, it is the nature of blindness, I want to point out right off the start, it is the nature of blindness that you cannot, uh, you need to be navigated to the thing that you are blind to. You, you need to be guided to it when you are blind to something. Now, in reality, uh, people who are physically blind often see better than people who are spiritually blind. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine who is blind, physically blind, and this guy's fully capable, navigates the city, he has an important job, and he had some pretty insightful things to say about this message when I picked his brain about it a little bit. Uh, people who are physically blind sometimes see better than sighted people who are spiritually blind because people who are physically blind see their blindness. They're aware of it. They, they know to work around it. They know when to ask for help. Spiritual blindness is much more dangerous and much more insidious. Spiritual blindness, it, it comes in the form of blind spots where you don't know what you don't know. You can't see what you can't see. And the nature of spiritual blindness is really blinding. It's the sort of thing that you have to be navigated to. This, in part, is why the church is so important, because we all have blind spots. Uh, we are all, uh, it, racial uh, injustice may not be the issue that's foremost in your mind at this moment. It might be some other thing. Uh, it might be some relationship problem or a difficulty you're facing or some other challenge or sin in your life. And we are all blind to the realities and the predicaments of the people around us. And we all need other people to guide us, to reveal to us the truth. Notice the way that this man's friends bring him to Jesus and they beg Jesus to help him. Last week, uh, Jordan gave a message about prayer, which is asking Jesus to help, and it's a message that would bear a second listen. So they bring this man to Jesus, and in verse 23, it says, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Jesus never healed the same way twice. He really didn't. Sometimes he would reach out to touch somebody, and sometimes he would be wandering through a crowd, and someone would reach out and take hold of him. Sometimes he would touch somebody. Sometimes he would just give the word from a distance. Uh, this time he spit on this guy's eyes. One time he spits in the dirt and makes mud and puts it on somebody's eyes. Sometimes he'd tell people to go share the good news. Other times he'd tell people, don't tell anybody about what's just happened here. He never did it the same way twice, and I think in part because he didn't want us to miss the point. It's not about the method. If Jesus did it the same way every time, there'd be a whole cottage industry right now about the Jesus method of healing going on. And it wasn't about the method. It was about the man, the spit, the mud, the words, the touch. These things never healed anybody. Jesus healed people. The other thing that I think is important here, though, is that this is gross. Jesus spit in this guy's eyes. He, this is awkward and uncomfortable, and I think that's really important because normally healing, the path to healing, is gross. It's awkward, and it's uncomfortable. And like I said, whether that is uh, 
having your sight restored, opening your eyes to the privilege that you have, or some other issue that is pressing on you right now, or some other issue that you are blind to spiritually right now. Sometimes in life, Jesus does an instant, dramatic healing, deliverance, and everything is all better. And when he does that, it is amazing. It's wonderful, and we're right to share those stories because it's incredible. But in my observation, it's extremely rare. Normally, whatever type of healing I need and you need, he does it a little bit at a time. And one thing that you can count on is that it's going to be uncomfortable. And it's probably going to be weird, the path that you need to take. I hope that you can trust Jesus as he does his thing in your life. And that's another way of saying I hope you can believe Jesus because that's what it means to believe Jesus. It means to trust Jesus. But so he spits in this guy's eyes and he he asks him, do you see anything? In verse 24, the man looked up and said, "I, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Now, this is fascinating. This guy's not 100% healed yet. He has had a genuine encounter with Jesus. Jesus has laid his hands on him and prayed for him or whatever Jesus does. And he's not 100% healed. He he started to see just a little bit. He started to make out the shapes a little bit. And this is where I feel like my whole life is right now in terms of my privilege. I definitely don't have 100% vision. But I have been touched by Jesus, and I'm starting to make out the shapes a little bit. And I think this is a really important thing to notice um, because it calls for patience. It calls for patience in your own life, in my own life, and it calls for a lot of patience with each other. Healing just, it doesn't happen overnight. It's just not the way that it works. And sometimes it seems like not much is happening, but Jesus is at work. Even after everything that he has given to me and graciously done in my life to help me get it, I'm still half blind. Um, I I needed more help with this message than I have with any message in a decade. More help from Jordan and many other people that I asked for help with this message uh, because I just can't see it. I I, I don't, I'm still half blind. And that is a humbling thing. It, It is a humbling thing to admit privilege. It feels the same way that it feels to me when I try to practice my Spanish with people, um, you just feel like an idiot. You, like, you say things and then they laugh because you say ridiculous things. And it takes a lot of courage to kind of put yourself out there and try to understand it, knowing you can never understand it. Because that's the real trick. It's kind of like this. It's like, I will never know what it's like to give birth. But my wife has given birth and I need to try to understand. I need to try to empathize. I need to listen to her and use my best imagination to try to get it, understanding that I can never know what it's like. I will never know what it's like to be black in America. But I still got to try. I I still want to try. And there's this incredible hope that even though these things happen slow and it's a little bit at a time, that points us back to the real hope that we have. And that's not about me at all. It's about Jesus, the one who's doing the healing And he's more committed to me than I even am to myself. He says, do you see anything? The guy says, I see people, they look like trees. And then in verse 25, it says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I don't know when I will see everything clearly, but I I know that I will. Not because of me but because I know that Jesus is committed to finishing the healing work in me. He's committed to finishing what he started in me. Uh, my, my grandma, 
my aunt uh, and my uncle Willie. My grandma is not fully healed. I, I would not uh, recommend that we put her in charge of, of racial policy in America right now. <laughs> but, but if I can say this with total confidence, those boys, they were a gift to our family. They're men now. I keep, they're my cousins, so I think of them as little boys. But um, those young men are, were a gift to my family. They don't even understand because it's pretty hard not to love your grandkids. And um, while I wouldn't put my grandma in charge of racial policy in America, I can say this. If my aunt married Uncle Willie today, my grandmother would go. She would go. <clears throat> then that's our hope, that Jesus will finish his work in us. Um, there was a man named Saul, one of Jesus' first followers, who was so spiritually blind that all of his efforts to serve God were actually opposed to Jesus. And one day, he was walking down the road, and God revealed himself to Saul in a blinding flash of light. And the truth was so blinding to Saul that he was physically blinded by it. And that's what it took to open the eyes of Saul's heart. That's what it took to turn Saul into Paul. And I want you to hear Paul's confidence for us, what he wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is unwaveringly committed to you. Even when you are faithless, Jesus will remain faithful to you. Whether it's racial justice or some other issue that's more pressing on your heart, on your mind right now, Jesus will patiently, lovingly finish what he has started in you. And there, there's a lot of hope in that. It is a tremendous hope. There's a lot of things that give me hope. Um, one of the things that gives me hope is this church, quite frankly. Um, the, the way that you have willingly engaged in this series, in these messages, in the community groups, um, been patient with each other, been patient with me, uh, it really does give me a, a lot of hope. Our leaders and the courage they have to start these uncomfortable conversations, and it really is just the start of the conversation, that gives me a lot of hope. Another thing that gives me a lot of hope is the, the next generation, which I definitely want to mention, especially after the scary black infant maternal mortality stats. Um, I got a text from Jordan. Um, Jessica brought their second son, Josiah Lawrence Rice, into this world. And um, he, was, he was beautiful. I, as I mentioned, I have two boys. I texted Jordan back. I was like, two boys is hilarious. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Good luck. Um, now, I wanted to share a picture of the baby. Jordan sent me a picture of him holding the baby, but I decided not to because the baby looks adorable. But to be honest with you, Jordan looked pretty rough. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want to expose him, you know, in front of the whole church. So you're going to have to wait to see the baby till Jordan and Jessica decide to share it. But baby and mom are both doing great. And the next generation, of course, gives me a lot of hope. We keep pushing the ball further down the field. And, um, and I hope my sons and Jordan and Jessica's sons can, can do better than I have and, and than we have. Uh, but the other thing that gives me a lot of hope, uh, the main thing that gives me a lot of hope is, is Jesus himself. You know, it is knowing what Jesus has done for me, knowing that it's not about anything I could ever do for myself, it's about what Jesus has already done for me, 
knowing that I am forgiven because of Jesus, not about anything about me, that's what gives me the firm ground I can stand on from which I can engage these uncomfortable realities. And it is uncomfortable. Admitting privilege feels like it, 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 admitting sin, and it, and it opens up the gate to these deep feelings of shame and, and guilt and paralysis. And, and whatever issue you're dealing with, it is a lot of uncomfortable. There's a lot of, of uh, awkward and, and maybe weird or gross things that we're going to have to go through following Jesus through this thing. But we can never forget that it's not about anything that we have done or can do or will do. It's about what Jesus already has done. And knowing that I'm forgiven for everything about me, my thoughts, the things that I do, past, present, and future, gives me that place where I can step into the light. I don't have to hide. I, I can admit that I don't have it all figured out. I can admit that I'm not the expert. I can admit my own ignorance, my own prejudice. I can admit that I, I'm wrong. I can admit that I don't get it. I can apologize. I can admit that I need to listen and learn. I can allow myself to feel uncomfortable and embarrassed. I can try to make amends. I don't have to have it all together in myself because Jesus has done for me what I never could do for myself. And this is a very, very great hope. It's the type of hope that can neutralize shame and guilt and just get you outside of yourself. It's the type of hope that can get you moving again, making some real changes instead of just feeling bad about it. And it's the type of hope that can sustain you. Even through the shadow of the valley of death, whether that's physical death or just the death of my own ego. And we need fear no evil, not even the evil within ourselves if you know who's with you. And I hope that you know who's with you. Let's pray. We're so grateful to you, Jesus. Uh, I'm so grateful to you that you always get it right uh, when I get it wrong, and you love me more than I even love myself. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us in this room right now to help every single man and woman here feel that feel your closeness, that you are with us, that you are committed to finish what you started in us, that you know us better than we know ourselves, and that you love us more than we love ourselves. And that if we just let you, you will have your way with us. We don't need to be afraid. Help us, Holy Spirit, realize, help us to feel that we can follow you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.